Good evening. I want to extend Christian greetings to each of you this evening. It's, uh, it's a real joy to be here. I really enjoyed the prayer time with the brothers in the room. So thank you for those of you who were able to make it for that time together. And I uh, just uh, enjoyed the heartfelt prayer of the one brother as he was praying for his father. We live in a, in a world that's been touched with a lot of brokenness. And we, uh, we need these times of refreshment around God's word where we find strength, where God touches us and, and gives us strength in the inner heart, in the inner man, to follow hard after Jesus. And so I invite you this evening uh, to turn for our first scripture to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, a very familiar passage of scripture. And uh, while you're doing that, I'll just introduce my wife, Sharon. Sharon's been married to me uh, for the same amount of time that I've been married to her, for 36 years. Working on 37, is that right? She has a wonderful memory. I don't so much. And so I, I depend on her heavily for a lot of things. And uh, one of the things that she's, she does a lot for me is find things that are right in front of me that I can't see. It's just sort of a, the way it is in our home. I'll look, and I can't find it, and she finds it right there where I look. But Sharon's been a tremendous blessing to me in life, and God has blessed us with uh, five living children. Uh, four of our children are married. And uh, we have, at this point, we have uh, nine living grandchildren. And if somewhere in the middle of the week, Sharon just seems to have raptured out of here, it means that Joanna had a, Joanna and Chris had another little one. So we're expecting a, a little one there sometime in the next couple of weeks. So uh, if she gets a call saying that she has a new grandchild, she won't stay around. I can, I can promise you that. <laughs> She'll be gone. <laughs> but God has been good. And, uh, Bless us. He's blessed us with salvation through his son, Jesus. And so together we want to just encourage our hearts in, in a truth that has been being shared now for a long, long time, for uh, probably close to 2,000 years. This gospel message has been being shared. And the amazing thing is it is still as powerful today as it was when Jesus said, guess what? The kingdom is now within your grasp. You can reach it. It's, it's so close to you that all you have to do is reach out. You can get a hold of it for yourself. Uh, John the Baptist came preaching that. Jesus repeated it. It's, it's right there. And Jesus brought that salvation message to us. And we're here uh, this week to, again, stir our hearts to uh, grasp a hold of that and make it very personal, very real in our lives, allow it to, to have that power exercising us to change us into the likeness of Jesus. So we're in, in Psalm uh, 119, and, and the question is, what is revival? We call these revival meetings, and what is revival? If, if you were to meet somebody on the street, and they said, well, what, why do you have revival meetings? What's it about? What would you tell them? Um, and I just hope that as we look at a couple scriptures here, that we at least can wrap our, our minds around a little bit what it is that God wants to do in our hearts. And the interesting thing is we think about revival sometimes most when we are in a week of meetings, like, I, you know, we're going to get revived. But what we want to see tonight is that God wants us to be experiencing revival in an ongoing daily way as we walk with him, to be growing consistently. And if you're like me, you find those times in your life where you feel like you're in a desert. And maybe you're there, and that's okay if you're there. But we don't want to stay there. We want to together walk towards Jesus and to, to drink of that living water that brings us out of that desert experience. 
So we're in, in Psalm 119, and I just want to call your attention to the set of verses of uh, 25 through 32. Psalm 119, starting at verse 25, and reading through verse 32, and then making a few comments about this set of verses. So the psalmist says this in verse 25, My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared thy, my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts, so that I, so shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. And so we hear the, the cry of the psalmist in verse 25. And what is his cry? He says, you know, my soul, it, it cleaves to the ground. It's like I am so bound to earthly things. My soul is tied to the things of the dust. Have you ever felt that way? Like you're just the, the overload of responsibility of caring for a family, of ministry responsibility if you're called to the ministry, but just making a living in our world. You know, you, you just feel like it, it demands so much of my strength and so much of my energy. What do I have left to pursue the Lord with? Where's this zeal and this energy that I need to seek after God? And to make God first in my life. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, you know, my, my, my soul just is like, it's, I'm on my face in the dust and I can't get up. Um, remember the, the reality that God created man and he created man upright. And he created man in his own image. What does that mean? Well, that means... To me, that means that when God created man, man shared in the glory and the virtue of God's character, his divine character. And that means that there was this open communication between man and God. There was no brokenness in the relationship. There was a wholeness about the relationship. There was an enjoyment in time spent together in the cool of the evening in fellowship. And man had all of the resources that he needed at his disposal. It was all right there. God gave him everything he needed for his health and enjoyment for prosperity. And when man chose to take his own way, in that day, he died. What was it that died about him? It was that part of God's divine nature that he had within him, that ability to communicate with God, that ability to show forth the virtue to show forth the glory of God's character, it died. And from that, that day forward, it wasn't just the, the serpent that crawled on his belly in the dust. It was man who, from the dust of the earth, sought to eke out a living, to, to earn his meat from the dust of the earth. And so we, have, we are, in a, in a sense, we're like we were created to fly, but we're tied to this world. It's the way it is, and sometimes I feel very much like that. You know, we live in this, in this world of corruption, and we live in interesting times, don't we? 
I remember as a boy hearing my, my mom and dad visit with neighbors, with neighbors and other uh, church people that would stop by to visit. And back then, it was just on the tail end of the Cold War. And the thing that everybody was talking about was the fact that Russia would like to nuke us. And, you know, as a, as a little boy who was 11, 12 years old, I would go to bed at night and hardly be able to sleep because I was afraid a nuclear bomb was going to go off somewhere close to me. I mean, it was just like, that was where the focus was. Do we have things that are pulling at our focus today? All kinds of things. I mean, you know, if you, if you listen to the news, you know, it used to be how many people were dying from COVID. That had everybody just fearful as can be. Well, not so many people are dying anymore, but we have a lot of uh, statistics. Now we just focus on the statistics. How many cases are in this state? How many cases in that state? I mean, you just got a barrage of stuff coming at you. All of you do. It's, it's very real. It's the world we live in. And there's a sense in which it just ties our face to the dust of the earth. It keeps our head down. And we have to be very careful in these times. We live in a time when we have to put extra energy, I believe, into being upright. We're Christians. We've been born again. We've been given the gift of salvation. We've been restored in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no wall between us anymore. And we're called to nurture that life-giving relationship, that intimacy that we need with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. We're called to nurture that and to drink deeply of that living water that Jesus is. And so we have a real challenge before us in this our day. We live in a world that I believe very much is living on the razor edge of imploding. We have a society that is filled with violence um, in, in ways that we haven't seen in generations past, uh, in America at least. And I think that we have a real responsibility, brothers and sisters, of strengthening our hearts in the Lord in these days that we live in and encouraging one another and building one another up in the faith and preparing our young people, uh, our children, for things that they may face that we never hope to see in our time. We have, a, we have a responsibility. And so what does revival mean? I want to look real closely at that verse 25 there. And there's a little word that you see there. It says, my soul cleaveth unto the dust. And what's that next word? Can someone tell me what that word is? Everybody together. Quicken. We can do better than that. Quicken. That's much better. Quicken. What does quicken mean? And, and I want to just point out, you know, you don't find the word revival uh, in the uh, scriptures. The word revive, yes, but not exactly the concept of revival. But here it is, quicken. Uh, the word quicken means to nourish, uh, to revive, to refresh, to strengthen, to build up, to restore. That's what quicken means. And it just, uh, if you Take, take the time sometime to read and see how many times you can find that, that word in uh, just Psalm 119. I can't remember. I think it's something like 10 or 11 times that you'll find that word or word very close to it. I'll just, I'll just point out a couple here in my Bible that I have highlighted with my highlighter. If you go over to verse 40 and we read this, Behold, I have long after thy precepts quicken me in thy righteousness. And we drop down to verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath Quicken me. And there we have it. God's word is living and it's alive. And if you want to be quickened, there's, there's where you find it. You find it in the living word of God and embracing it in your heart, meditating upon it, praying it back to the one who gave it to us. And so the word quicken is uh, just something I want to leave with you. What does revival mean? 
It means to be quickened by God in our spirits, to made whole, to be restored, to recover, to repair. I want to call our attention yet um, to verse 28. My soul melteth for heaviness, strengthen thou me according to thy word. And I want to just point out that I have found such an incredible strength in my life in just resting in the, the sufficiency of God's word. Uh, there's many voices out in the world today, and none of them are without significance. There's a many, many different voices that are distracting Christians today, offering hope, offering solutions. The, the author here of Psalm 119, the one who penned these words, said it is God's word that can strengthen us. You know, I, I, I'm amazed, and this is the thing that amazes me, is that we have the living word of God in our hand. And we will lay it down and we will go for something that human people wrote and look to other things other than the word of God to bring wholeness to our, our spirits. And it's not there, brothers. It's not there. I'm not saying that some things that writings of other people can't be helpful, but the living word of God is healing. And it will heal our hearts and it will draw us in close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone is the one who holds life out to sin sick souls. Uh, I want to call our attention to verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. Verse 31. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord. Put me not to shame. And so the psalmist is saying, look, I've made right choices. I have chosen to walk in the way of righteousness. I have chosen the narrow road of truth. I have chosen that. He says in verse 31, I'm steadfast. You know, I am absolutely committed to walking in, in the ways of God. And then in verse 32, he says, I will run the way of thy commandments. And that word will, I will, that's like renewing my covenant to do what God has called me to do. Do you find yourself doing that? I do. I drive down the road and sometimes a thought will come to me that is a thought that no Christian should be thinking. Yeah, it happens to me. It does. And I say, I will follow Jesus. I say it out loud. What am I doing? I am renewing my covenant to be a follower of Jesus. I am renewing my covenant to be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm saying, I will. I will to make God's will my will. I'm not going to follow my own will. That's always death. I will. It can be a negative thought about somebody. It can be bringing up a past hurt. And I said, I will forgive. I will not allow that to become bitterness in my heart. I will follow Jesus. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I will. He's following the example that we have of Jesus, who did not come to do his own will, but his Father's will. And he delighted in his Father's will. And the psalmist here is saying that the way to renewal, the way for, for us to be quickened in our hearts and our spirits is to renew this covenant. I will. I will bow my will to the will of my Heavenly Father. I will bow my will to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then there's, a, there's a, another word there I want us just to look at just for a second. And, and I, I found this interesting. I was, I was looking at this earlier today in, in the Hebrew, and there's um, a little discrepancy here with the way it was interpreted in the King James Version. It says, I will run the way of thy commandments. And then you see the next word there is when when 
thou shalt enlarge my heart. And the Hebrew says that that word should be because, okay? So it's, it's not like I'm going to be obedient to you when you make my heart bigger. But he's saying because, okay, it's because of my absolute commitment to my vow to follow Jesus, to be obedient to God, to keep his commandments, that God will, because God will then enlarge my heart. And there's so much more in the original there than what we're actually getting here. But it has to do with, uh, the enlarging of the heart has to do with my zeal for God. The temperature of my love for God. Okay? So, the having a larger heart, that's a heart that is being enlarged because of my passion to know Jesus. And it also has to do with my motivation for keeping his commandments. So that it's like twofold. And it's hard for me to explain it because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I enjoy looking at Hebrew in the concordance, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But, I, but it's like twofold. Uh, God does the enlarging of my heart when I am absolutely faithful to my commitment to follow him and to walk in his ways. God does the enlarging of my heart. How does he enlarge it? He grows the zeal in my heart, my passion for him, and he gives me the ability to know the motivations of my heart. Is that powerful? Is that deep or what? You know, really, why do you do what you do? Do you know the motivations of your heart? And I think that if, if we want to, uh, to experience revival in our hearts, we have to be able to test the motivations of our heart. And so when I get up in the morning and, you know, I got so many things weighing on me to get done that day. I got responsibilities weighing on me. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, ah, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. But of course, I want to sit down. I want to read my Bible first before I do this and this and this and this because, of course, it's right to do the Bible reading and the prayer thing before I go on with my day. My motivation that is driving me to pick up my Bible and read is simply a legalistic fulfillment of obligation. I'm just simply appeasing my conscience. Are you with me? Am I right? I'm just doing that. And I'm not saying that if you're struggling to feel a loving relationship with the Father, you shouldn't pick up your Bible and read it. You should. You should. But it's important that we can test the motives of our heart. And do I read my Bible because I love Jesus and I really want to know him more? I really want the zeal in my heart to grow and my heart to be enlarged? Or am I just doing it to get it out of the road so I can go and live my day and manage my responsibilities and be successful in life? I need to know the motivations of my heart. And Jesus wants to speak into that. That's one of the ways that he restores us. He calls us to test the motivations for why we do what we do. And to humbly ask him to cleanse those motivations. And to give us a zeal, a, a desire to really, really draw near to him. And to enter in to the fullness of his salvation. I want to call our hearts next. There's a couple other passages of scripture that spoke to my heart recently. If you don't mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 6 with me. Isaiah chapter 6. And so, what is revival? What is revival? I think at the very, uh, the very basic definition of revival 
is it is a, a renewed commitment to obedience to the very first commandment. Is that a good definition? It is a renewed commitment in my heart to obey the very first commandment. It's to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my might. To give myself to loving God. That is, I think, at its very core, that is a good definition of what it means to be revived. And that's what we're seeking. Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. We all need personal revival. I don't know how many of you have been praying for revival this week. I hope all of you have been. We need to be praying for revival in our brotherhoods. And where does that start? I, I, I have the privilege of going to churches sometimes like we are just right now. And uh, sometimes some of the congregation will come to me and say, uh, we're, praying, we're praying that we might have revival. There's, there's young people here that haven't given their hearts to the Lord yet. And we're really concerned about that. You know what I say? Uh, revival has a whole lot to do with those who are professing Christians. And when we as those who profess to know Christ humble our hearts and experience revival, there is nothing more powerful in the heart of a young person than to see people get real with God who humble their hearts and confess their sins, love each other, they're committed to God, they're committed to each other, there's nothing more powerful than that. So let's pray for revival. And let's own more hearts together before God. Here's an example of a man who experienced personal revival. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one has six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the pulse of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphs unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from, with the tongues from the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sins, thy sin purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Here am I. Send me. And we know, this, we know the background of the story. It's a bit of a sad story, really. Uzziah was one of the good kings, one of the better kings. And he served the Lord, and the Lord prospered him. And when he was prospered, when the Lord strengthened him, the scripture tells us that he became proud and lifted up. And one day he went into the temple, and he wanted to offer, I think it was uh, incense or something. And... Um, the um, 
Someone there said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You see, God is very jealous, God. God gives very clear instructions. And God said, look, I want the king to be a king, and I want the priest to be a priest, and I want the prophet to be a prophet. No man can fulfill two offices. He was protecting the reality that one day there would be a man who would fulfill all three of those offices, and he'd be prophet, priest, and king. Who is that? Jesus. The only one who can fulfill all three of those offices is Jesus Christ. Uzziah insisted on fulfilling the prophet, of the, the, the office of a priest. And when, as he was reaching out, I think it was, to uh, offer the incense, before he did it, as he was reaching his hand out, God smote him. Smote him with leprosy. Leprosy was called the living death. And the scriptures tell us that he ran from the temple. He realized God was serious. I should have taken God seriously. And he ran from the temple. And they put him in isolation. And he lived out the remainder of his days in agony and disgrace. Because he did not respect God's commands. And so this is a time of trouble in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He was also, if I remember correctly, he was the first cousin to King Uzziah, and he served under King Uzziah. And now Uzziah has died, and you know, we think there's a lot of turmoil over a new election and a new president taking office, but that is nothing compared to a new king coming in. I mean, heads rolled almost every time a new king came into office. I mean, you got rid of anybody you didn't like and you established yourself and you made sure everybody was for you and if you weren't for the king, look out. And it was was like a a tense time of turmoil. And so that is the setting here. And God comes to Isaiah. And what was Isaiah's focus? It was on everything that was happening around him. It was all the chaos. It was all the trouble. It was all the turmoil. That's where his focus was at. His face was in the dust. And what does he see? It is my conviction from all the scriptures that what he's seen was the Lord Jesus Christ on a throne. And his train filled the temple. Now the temple is the house of God. As I understand it, today in the New Testament covenant, his train fills this building. You like that? He's here. He's here. He's present. He's present. And he's on the throne. I just really like this. It's like, if there's anything that will bring your face up out of the dust of our society, it's to have a vision of Jesus. On his throne, his train filling the church, and it's like, it's all okay here. Where would you rather be than in the body of Christ? where Jesus is, where he's reigning. Not worried about anything. No anxiety. Everything's going forward. He's building his church. The gates of hell are not prevailing against it. And Isaiah has this amazing vision of Jesus. And what happens? Even the seraphims cover their eyes at the glory of Jesus. And they cover their feet. And they declare his holiness, that he is worthy of our praise. 
And if the whole earth is full of his glory, he created the earth, and it's full of his glory. You can see it everywhere you look. We've seen it all over the place coming down here. Your, your cherry trees and all the other beautiful trees that are blooming right now are much more fuller bloom than what they are in West Virginia. And we were just enjoying it. It's the glory of the Lord. It was all around us the whole way down here. But here's the interesting thing. So the first part of the vision is this, is that Isaiah gets his face lifted up out of the dust and he sees the glory of Jesus. And Jesus now has his attention. And what happens when you see the glory of Jesus? The second part of the vision is that you see your own wretchedness. And if you haven't seen the glory of Jesus for a while, if you haven't seen it for a while, guess what? We're all like Isaiah. We start focusing on our accomplishments, the things that God has blessed us with. We start feeling secure, snug, kind of happy with how life is going. We pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, we need to see Jesus. We need a clear vision of Jesus. We need to see our own sinfulness. And he says, woe is me. He's a man of unclean lips, and he dwells among a people of unclean lips. And it's only when he sees his righteousness that the Lord provides the cleansing. When he acknowledges with his mouth, woe is me. And that is, that is the way our Lord is. If you humble your heart, you confess your sin, he always meets you right there. If you are proud and refuse to acknowledge your brokenness, mercy does not come to your heart. And Jesus so clearly illustrated that with the two men who stood in the temple and prayed. And the one man felt pretty good about himself. And the other man smote his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says these beautiful words about that man. He said, he went up justified. What a beautiful word, justified. Yeah. The last point I want to make before we go to our final scripture is that Isaiah <clears throat> had an enlargement of heart. What happened? The Lord says, I need a servant. I need someone who's willing to go and to carry my message. He says, I'm here. Here, my Lord, send me. And he was, he was signing up for a very, very difficult task. A very difficult task. He says, I'm yours. I'll serve that king who's sitting on the throne in a time of great social turmoil, whose train fills the house of God. I'll serve that king. I'll give myself to him. I don't need to know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. As long as I'm under his authority and under his leadership, that's all I care about. I want to be his servant and do what he calls me to do. I'll die for a king like that. I'll lay down my life and yield up my life to be his servant. Isaiah, he was willing to sell out and just be his servant. And that is the true test, I believe, of the level of love that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to go to one last scripture for this evening, and this is found in Revelation chapter 3. I recently preached through the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of things in Revelation I don't understand. And, and I preached through the book, and there's still a lot of things I don't understand. 
But it's not so much the things that I don't understand that bother me, but it's the things that I do understand. It's the things that the Spirit of God has been convicting my heart about. <clears throat> this is one of those passages that really stood out to me. It's in the, the last and final letter in this passage, or seven churches that the Lord Jesus Christ communicates with and about. And while they all uh, bring a message to the church in, in 2021, there's probably none that hits us quite so hard as the last one, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. And so what we'll do is we'll just read down through, um, starting in verse 14 to the end of the chapter, and then make a few comments on this passage. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou wert that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increasest in goods and have need of nothing, and knoweth not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, Thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In verse 14, Jesus identifies himself as the Amen, as the faithful and true witness. He identifies himself as the one who was very much involved in the creation of the world. He was there when the world cre was created. He has a long history of knowing the truth with the Father. He is a faithful and he is a true witness. He does not deviate in any way from his Father's word or truth. And so what he says is, I know thy works. I've been watching. That's what just really struck me reading through the seven uh, the letters to seven churches. Is in every every one, Jesus says, I know what's going on in this brotherhood. I know the motivations of every heart sitting right here. And what Jesus is, is wanting to see is he's wanting to see revival in his congregations. Do we need that today? A revival, which at the very basic level is a renewal of our commitment to the first and greatest commandment. And here's the amazing thing. Is you, cannot, you cannot renew your commitment to the first commandment without also renewing your commitment to the second commandment. You can't do it. It's inseparable. If you're going to love God in a new and a fresh way, you will love your brother and 
in a new and a fresh way. Your commitment to God and your commitment to your brothers goes hand in hand. You can't separate it. It's just the way it is. You don't like it, you're not going to change it. This is, this is his church. It's not ours. It's just the way it's going to be. It's always going to be that way. And so we have to just simply embrace it in our hearts and say, yeah, he's calling us to a renewed commitment to obey his commandments. And he's calling us to a renewed love, not just for him, but for one another. And we desperately need that in our, in our brotherhoods, all of our brotherhoods in this our day. There's, there are so many of us have been living with our face to the dust and to the world, looking down at the things of this world, the material things of this world that are going to pass away and becoming uh, attracted to them, yes, attracted to the ways of the world and the spirit of the world. And because of that, no, maybe because our love has grown cold, it is manifested in our lives. And it is by our love one for another that the world, this is our strongest witness to the world, is our love one for another. If we don't have that in place, we don't really have anything that we can export to the world. We don't really have anything to invite them in to experience in the body of Christ. And so we have to constantly be guarding and renewing our love one for another and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I know your works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert either cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And we're familiar with that, that whole uh, concept of taking a lukewarm glass of water and you take a drink of that and just how repulsive that is if you are thirsty. God says, look, you were cold. I want you to run with the needle right up there, red hot. Different than your tractor, different than your car. You want to run with your needle red hot. Don't let it drift down into the lukewarm. I'd rather it be over on the cold. Because then maybe, maybe you'll wake up and repent and come back to me. But this lukewarm thing is really, really bad. It's a really bad thing. Because you have been there, you've said the right things, you've done the right things, you've been to communion, you've gone to the revival services, but you're, the motivations for why you do what you do is not because you love Jesus. It's like, I want my brothers to think I'm okay. You know, I don't want to, I don't want people to think I got problems. So we're going to hang in here. No, no. Jesus says, I want you to have a heart that is full of zeal for me. I want your needle to be pinned right there, red hot. You're committed to developing a zeal for Jesus. And you understand that you can't love the world and have a heart full of zeal for Jesus at the same time. You're committed to having a heart that is filled with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that works. I know the motivations for why you do what you do. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have needed nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, we have in Morgan County, West Virginia, we've done a fair amount of construction work, and they have this little gray car that drives around, and on the side of it, it says Morgan County Assessor. And I don't like that little car. Because they come into every job we do before we're even done, and they measure everything you do and make sure your building is exactly the size you got the permit for. And then they want to know exactly what you pay, what it costs. What was the contract? Well, I already told you that when we got the permit. Yeah, but what is it now? You know, do you put any any change orders, all that in here? So we get we take care of all that. And then they put an assessment on the building. And it never lines up with my 
assessment of it. And that frustrates me. I built it. I know this building. I know how many nails are in this building. I know how many dollars of material, how many dollars of labor. But they put their assessment on it. And their assessment is what they go by. Because they have the rules they follow. And I don't know what the rules are. So I have my assessment. They have their assessment. And they're always right. Jesus says, you know what? You're assessing your own life. But what's the standard that you're using to assess your own life? What is it? And we all have to answer this question. Because we all tend to look at those around us. We look at other churches. And we assess our life by them. Or we look at the brothers in the in the. Uh, in the pew, and we say, you know, I don't have the problems that brother has or that sister has. I'm not struggling like that. I don't have a lust problem. We assess ourselves by our own standard. Do we not? Is that not what our tendency is? And Jesus says this. He says, I am the true and the faithful witness. I have the right standard. The word of the living God is a standard. Jesus himself is a standard that we are assessed by. Now, here's, here, here's something we need to think about and never forget. You will never, ever measure up. You won't. That's why we need Jesus to die for us. Because we'll never be what we should be. We can never earn our salvation. And he understands that. But he wants us to assess ourselves by his standard, by his measure, the measure of the man that he is and was. That we can humbly recognize our deep need and be amazed at his grace and his mercy in our lives. Because we cannot appreciate the mercy and the grace of God until we come to this great realization that we will never measure up. We can't. And what happens, the beautiful thing that happens when we allow Jesus to assess our lives is that we all come to level ground at the foot of the cross. None of us are better than the other. We're all right here. We all have this desperate need for Jesus to wash us in his blood, to set us free, to lead us by his spirit, to renew the heart within us, to make us the people that he has redeemed us to be. And so we want Jesus to be the assessor of our life. And what he is saying, what he is saying to the church at Laodicea is he says, I want you to do this one thing. I want you to be committed. I want you to renew your vow to make sure that your zeal for me is running red hot. You're absolutely committed to pressing in, to striving, to agonizing, to be what I've called you to be. And that's in love with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I love that word sup. Jesus talks about that when he was on earth. He says, here's what's going to happen. The Father's going to draw you. You can access the Father through me. And if you come, if you accept this invitation, I'm knocking at your door. Each one of you personally. I, this, is, this is how revival happens in brotherhoods, is that it happens in your individual heart through your response to the Lord Jesus. And he knocks at your heart's door. And when you open up the door and invite him in, over and over again. We often think about this is something that happens when I give my heart to the Lord. Now we need this over and over and over again. 
he comes in and Jesus said, he said, I'm going to gird myself and I'm going to serve you. That's what's going to happen. And we look forward to that at the end of time when we're brought into the kingdom of God, when our Lord and Savior is going to serve us. But right now we can have this eternal God quality life right now, here and now of knowing Jesus and being at peace with him. Drawing close. This is talking about intimacy. This is talking about him loving you in spite of anything. In spite of any failures, in spite of any struggles that you have in your life. Jesus is saying, I invite you to come. I invite you to respond to the fact that I want to be your Savior. And I want an intimate relationship with you. I want you to know me. I want you to know my grace and my forgiveness. I want you to know my power. That if you eat and drink of me, you experience life, you experience renewal. So, what is revival? Revival is when we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to renew us, to restore us, to refresh us with the living water that he is. And when we make a vow in our hearts, that we will stop at nothing to be obedient to his commandments, to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, with all of our strength, and to love each other as Jesus Christ has loved us. And if we allow Jesus to assess our lives, there's just one thing that we will always conclude, and that is that we fall far short. We fall far short. But he does not look at us based on our performance he looks at us based on the motivation of your heart. That means there's hope for all of us. And he invites us to come and to renew our commitment to love him in sincerity and in truth. Why don't we just stand for a word of prayer and dismissal? <clears throat> Father, our Father, we thank you that you're our Father and that you're in heaven. And thank you, Father, that your power, your presence fills the earth. There's not a thought that we think or have thought this past day that you're not aware of. There's not a word that slipped out of our lips that you did not hear. Father, so many times we live life just, uh, just choosing not to think about those things. In fact, Father, we live life at such a neck break speed that we often fail to even hear your Spirit speak to us. As we pause before you just now, I pray that you would begin a revival in each one of our hearts by helping us to recognize that we have not been tending the zeal in our hearts as we should have. And Father, we, we just recognize that when we do not have a heart that is zealous for you, that there's uh, pride and jealousies, contention that springs up in our heart and in our relationships, and in our brotherhoods. And we lose that testimony to the world. And as your people, we want to reclaim that testimony. We say, Father, 
Help us to, as Isaiah did, to take ownership of our brokenness and of our sin. And we just confess it to you just now, Father. And I just pray that each brother and each sister, just now, as we stand here before you in your presence, your train filling this temple, that we would have a fresh vision of your readiness and your willingness to forgive us and to give us grace to draw near with a heart that is full of assurance, not in us, but in you, in Jesus, our Savior. Strengthen us this week as we desire that your word would speak to us, as we desire to draw near as brothers to the foot of the cross and to be amazed at your exceeding love for us, Father. We want our hearts to be warmed by the truth of who you are and the extent that you went to to make it possible that we could hear that knock on our heart's door. Give us grace throughout this week to open our heart to you and allow you to speak, yes, even words that are painful to receive because we know that those that you love, you rebuke. You call to yourself. And we thank you, Father, that with every rebuke that you give us, you also speak words of great hope into our hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.